Long-term recovery takes time, but you're not alone in this because Lane and I are here to guide and walk this journey beside you. Join myself, Tamar Medford, and my good friend, Lane Kennedy, as we engage in conversation about what it takes to live a fulfilled life in long-term recovery. Come and take a guided tour as you gain a deeper understanding of your behavior, how your mind works, and your spirit. Each week on the You're Sober Now What podcast, you'll hear real stories of transformation, mindfulness, and science-based relapse prevention strategies, and real conversations and steps that you can take to enhance your life so that you can achieve long-term sobriety. Thank you for being here, and let's get into the episode. Welcome back to the You're Sober Now What podcast. My name is Tamar Medford, and I am just one of your hosts on the show. Now, I hope you're enjoying the new format where my online bestie, Lane Kennedy, and I are just having real open and honest and raw conversations about what it's like to walk in long-term recovery. You know, at um, this moment in time, I'm coming up to my 10-year mark, which, you know, a lot of people define as that long-term recovery mark. And In my own experience, you know, I hear some people at the age of five share that they're in long-term recovery and to each their own, but my head was not fully out of my ass at five years, right? I still had so much to learn. I was complacent at that time. I didn't feel like I had a solid footing. I didn't really know myself. And I feel like when you hit the 10-year mark, even more starts to change, right? I had that initial transformation within my first year. Um, you know, as I progressed, I learned more and more about myself, but in that middle, there was this lull. And I think that's the time where a lot of people end up losing this battle, right? They relapse and they don't get a chance to come back. And so when we talk about long-term recovery, we're talking about that 10 year plus mark and I'm at the 10 year mark. So I can really focus on that one to 10 and Lane is at 25. And so she can focus on that 10 to 25 year mark. So you're going to get all perspectives and, the area that we specialize in is really helping accomplished women, right? Or women who want to become accomplished, reach long-term recovery or enhance their long-term recovery, right? Because I know a lot of people in long-term recovery that just aren't happy. And I don't know about you, but I didn't get sober to live a boring, just mundane, unfulfilled life. I mean, we are capable of so much more. So, That's why we're here. Uh, We also have a members community. Um, If you go to members.connectedcomlife.com, you can check that out. There's different plans. Uh, You can join for as little as a Starbucks um, Thai chai, sorry, tea latte. (laughs) And, um, you know, there's lots of cool things in there. You'll get exclusive access to interviews that we do uh, on this podcast here, videos, there's courses, programs, meditations, all sorts of cool things. So make sure you check that out, members.connectedcomlife.com. And today's a special episode because I just completed a few months ago the Rise Beyond Recovery Virtual Summit, which was 36 speakers from all over the world sharing their stories of how they've created a life beyond recovery, because I think that's important, right? We focus a lot on the addiction part, but, you know, after people get into that long-term recovery, it's almost kind of like nobody's talking anymore and we want to talk. And so Lane was one of the guests for the summit 
And she got to share her story as well as some tips and strategies. So I thought it would be cool to revisit that interview so you get a little bit of a backstory on Lane. Um, And yeah, it's always a fun conversation. And don't forget, um, if you have any ideas for the show or you have a topic that you would like us to discuss or you have a question, go to our website, which is yoursobernowit.com. There's a little button in the top right-hand corner that says Ask Us. And ask us a question, suggest a topic. We'll give you a shout out on the show, but we want this to be as much about you guys, right? And as it is about us. And because we're all in this together, we're all walking this journey together. And so we want you to be a part of it. And it's like you're hanging out, having a conversation with us, right? Drinking your favorite beverage. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this episode. We're live, Lane. We're live. Excellent. (laughs) I'm so excited. Um, thank you, by the way, for helping me kick off this summit. This is something, as you know, that has been a dream of mine for a couple of years now. And just to bring all of these people together that are on the same mission to help people, not only you know in early recovery, but to help them create a life beyond recovery is something I'm really mm-hmm. excited about. Because obviously relapse is something that is so common in our world. Mm-hmm. And I want to help make a difference and end that and inspire people through your stories that we can create more. So for people who don't know you, um, Mm -hmm. can you kind of let them know who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course. It's just so great to be with you, Tamar. My name is Lane Kennedy and I am a mindfulness meditation teacher, the creator of the Connected Calm Life and the host of the Connected Calm Life podcast. And, you know, I'm really here to support women and men, uh, reconnect to themselves and an inner resource so they can be calm. So they can live a more peaceful life. So they're not so reactionary and, you know, in recovery, that's really important. So it's good to be with you tomorrow. And reactionary. Oh, (laughs) I can't tell Mm -hmm. you how many times I put my foot in my mouth where I'm like, oh, probably shouldn't have said that. And Mm -hmm. we'll talk about it a little bit later on with, you know, what we're working on in terms of emotional intelligence and stuff that really cool stuff we nerd out about. But, you know, obviously there's a backstory and why you Mm -hmm. do what you do today. So what was life like growing up for you and and kind of what led to your addiction? Hmm. Where do I want to start with that? (laughs) So I'm of the variety that, you know, says I was born as an alcoholic. It's in my DNA. If, if, when I pull my DNA, I look at my DNA and I have the SNPs and the gene profile for alcohol disposition. Uh, so I grew up, I loved candy. I loved gumballs. Like I would like put 12 gumball pieces in my mouth, right? Uh, like I couldn't get enough ice cream. I couldn't get enough, um, those little peanut butter cracker things. Just, I was obsessed with food and filling up that started really young for me. And, you know, when I was growing up, I come from a household of drugs and alcohol and it was scary and foreign and there were guns and, paraphernalia. Uh, so there was some sense of normalcy around it, but the little girl in me, the innocent me knew that there was conflict and it wasn't right. And by the time 
I was 13. There was a traumatic experience in our house and uh, that event drove my alcoholism. That is when I discovered alcohol. I was 12 uh, because I started drinking right then. I wanted to escape those memories, those ideas. And I drank and I blacked out that first time. And the game was on. It was on from that moment until I found recovery in my late 20s. So that was a long time drinking. And every time I drank, I felt something. You know, I felt different. I felt better. I felt calmer. I felt like I could be a part of. And that gave me a lot of relief until it didn't. Uh, you know, I drank through college. I drank through girlfriends and boyfriends. I just, I love drinking. I love it. And then it stopped working. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I still love drinking Diet Coke, but uh, that's something I'm working on. And so, you know, and something I wanted to comment on is because I've been told this before is that, you know, being someone who's in recovery, I've had people say, well, you don't look like somebody who would have that background and that history. And that's why there it is. I think a lot of people don't get help because of that, because they don't look the part. They're not homeless. Like, and yep. you had, even in your addiction, I mean, your story, getting to that mm-hmm. moment where you hit that bottom, which is when you decided to stop digging, right? It's, I don't yep. like to compare bottoms because I think it's when we finally hit that spiritual bankruptcy part of it. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> what did that part of the journey look like for you when you finally decided, okay, enough's enough, I have to change? Well, you know, I had put my best friend, I had pretty much beat her up, gave her a concussion and didn't know about it. Uh, I found the role of film that somebody was taking pictures of me like swinging, right? It was just a a bloody mess, honestly. Uh, So that was a moment of, oh my gosh, I think I have a problem. And you would think maybe that would be the stopping point. And it was a year later, actually, that again, I, I cooked a whole turkey and Jack Daniels because I thought that would make it better. And I bought cases of wine because I was having a party. There were three of us, you know, nobody really showed up. Um, and I blacked out and you would think that would have been my last time drinking. And I know about this from this, the pictures. That's the only reason I know that I doused the turkey that I had purchased all the wine. Um, I was really emotionally bankrupt. Uh, I didn't have really deep connected friends or conversations. Uh, you know, I got sober in Los Angeles and I had a big career and I had a big bank account. I had a, a lot of outside stuff that everybody thought, Lane, you're normal it's fine. You're, you present really well, but the truth of the matter is, is I, I was like broken. I couldn't really keep my car clean. I couldn't pay my bills on time. Uh, I, I owed the IRS. I didn't, I was like, what do you mean you have to pay taxes? Right? Like normal things. What do you mean you have to go to the dentist? Right? Normal things. I could not wrap my head around. And by the time that my girlfriend and I found recovery, 
it was like, I felt relief. I felt relief when I walked into that room, uh, you know, on new year's Eve and they said, Oh my God, you're, you're here. Here's a cup of coffee and some cookies. And I thought they know who I am. Of course. And I felt so special and they didn't really care who I was or what I was doing. They just saw somebody new walk into this room and they welcomed me. And I hadn't felt that, um, love that kin that kindred spirit maybe ever. Uh, so I, I am just so grateful that I had that moment, you know, that moment where I beat my best friend up the moment of basking the Turkey. And then, you know, 30 days later of those people being really, really nice to me. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it's a, I felt when I came into recovery, maybe, you know, the second or third time, but I finally found a place where my people were hanging out. Like for the first time in my life, I felt a part of, I felt like these people really get my crazy. Like I can say (laughs) things out loud and people don't look like, what did she just say? Because Mm -hmm. that was a normal part of my life. And, you know, Tort, you talk about that perception on the outside where people see that you think you have it together because you got Mm -hmm. the stuff. Like I had the Mm -hmm. same thing. And I mean, other than if they went out with me, they knew that it was a bit of a shit show. Um, But for the most part, they couldn't believe like when I finally hit that point where I was like, okay, I need help. Obviously Mm -hmm. those closer to me were like, thank God. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was a shocker. So, you know, for early recovery that finding your community, because I think too many people try to do this alone. And I see it happen all the time. They read a book. I used to be a self-help book junkie. Yes. (laughs) I'm like, now my life is going to change, but I never actually did anything in the book. I just read it and I'm like, it's absorbed all up here. Everything's good. But I think, you know, you need that community and we don't have to do this alone. So Mm -hmm. how did you build that foundation in recovery? You know, it was, I was really lucky in the sense that I stumbled into 12 steps and I could throw a stone to a room. Like literally I could roll out of bed and roll down into a room. And there happened to be uh, people that I admired and looked up to in that room. And I thought, Oh, wait a minute, they're doing this. Then I can do this seriously. Uh, and I got really kind of plugged into a, like a cohort, so to speak. So, um, like I'm the class in 96 and that cohort, we, we went to the movies, we, we had breakfast, we went to lunch, we had dinner together. We would have parties together. We had like, we were together. It seemed 24 seven and this wonderful community, this fellowship grew up around me and I learned how to communicate and be friends and, uh, have relationships, right? Like I learned how to pay my bills, get a new car. Like I learned how to do register for the DMV, get a new license. Yeah. All of it within the confines of this community that I was getting, you know, sober in. Yeah. And it's, that was the same thing for me. And I, you know, it makes me sad today because you hear so many people that are like, I've, I tried 12 step recovery and I felt judged. And I always 
think, okay, you know what though? It's not about the people like, and for me personally, and I don't know how you felt about this, but like I was trying to justify every reason to not be there as well that first time. But then when I finally started listening for the common things we had, I was like, wow, these people are exactly like me and it's Mm -hmm. not the people. And I was at a state where I was so desperate not to go back there that Mm -hmm. I was willing to over overlook the personalities of other people because we get we can get really judgmental oh you know (laughs) so judgmental (laughs) (laughs) exactly so yeah I always tell people like find your home find your people because it really I mean just look at the online community now it's like that's how we found each other right yeah mutual connection and you know now you're one of my sober sisters so I think that there's a point in a lot of people's recovery and I hit it at around five years mm-hmm. and I find the changes are kind of like the five and now I'm at the 10. So that's, you know, happening again, but where you see that complacency start to happen yep. and people yep. fall, fall away and yep. most don't make it back. So for you, how did you start to evolve and grow in your recovery? Because it does take more. It's not just keep it doing it. I'm good. I'm graduated. No, I really believe that we're in a place now in our culture that recovery comes in so many forms and you can find it in so many different places. And when I was five, you know, nine 11 had hit and I got on a plane and I traveled, right? Like, like I, I was, I was like, I'm done with this. I need to go travel and see the world. Maybe the world's going to end. And I got to like get right with something else. And so I traveled, I landed in a Wat, uh, a Buddhist monastery. And I, I studied Buddhism and chanted, I was uncomfortable. Um, but that was a doorway or an opening to evolving in my recovery because that complacency is really sneaky. And you, I didn't think I was, you know, it was the problem, right? Like I never think I have a problem because I'm just living my life. But then what becomes evident is my emotional wellness and how I'm interacting with others or how I don't have any friends, right? Like it goes from zero to 150 in no time at all. And I've had this throughout recovery where, you know, that, that doorway of going and studying and being a part of Buddhism and learning different practices, open my heart and a way to deepen my path to help others. And I don't think I would have been able to do that if I hadn't been open-minded, you know, that's one of the gifts of recovery is like waving that white flag saying, I don't know what to do. I'm not doing this right. I'm drinking too much. Uh, This isn't working. I can't pay my bills. Right. And in recovery, I've had to wave that flag and be like, okay, I don't know what I'm doing here. Well, find a practice, right? Like that has become the message over and over and over the years. So at five, I went and studied at 10, I had the next awakening, like 15, there's been right. Like I keep searching to open that doorway 
to make it broader, wider, lighter for me to travel in. Does that make sense? Totally. Totally. Like the disease of alcoholism wants me to be isolated and alone and in the crazy thinking. But when I am practicing and connected to a resource that's greater than me, whatever that may be, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not stuck in the, the loops of my own thinking, which are destructive, dis- divisive, uh, deceitful. Mm-mm. I don't want to live there. Mm-hmm. So I just keep looking and searching and evolving. Yeah, and it's exciting. It, like it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you know, part of my journey over the last year and you've helped me get through a lot of things, but I feel that <clears throat> the more open-minded we are, the more resilient we become. And the more we can endure all this stuff that comes at us, it's like, okay, one foot in front of the other every single day. And, you know, I've learned recently about the whole codependency bit of it. And I'm like, oh man, another onion or, (laughs) you know, that I have to do, Uh 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 (laughs) which is fun in and of itself. But, you know, in terms of meditation, because now you teach mindfulness and meditation, how did you get into that? You know, alcoholism is emotional. It's, and I don't recognize my emotions. You know, I was taught happy and sad when I was growing up, like I was either happy or sad. And so through recovery, I've learned, uh, oh, I'm uncomfortable. Oh, I'm, I'm feeling shame. Oh, I have guilt, right? Like I've been able to put words to emotions that I'm feeling in the moment. And I think I was, I don't know, between 15 and 17 years in recovery. And I, uh, you know, started to have rage, like anger issues, really like traumatic, <laughs> like not okay. Uh, I should have been drinking again. Like, it, like for the grace of God, I never picked up, but the, the rage that I felt inside was tearing me apart. And so much so that I was driving my car in San Francisco in the hate district and the guy wasn't driving like I wanted him to, you know, like, and then he just stopped his car and it's not, um, it's, this is like a normal thing in the city. People will stop their car and then they'll back up and park and back forth. Right. The streets are small, but I had no patience and no tolerance for it. And I'm like, I got out of my car and I went up to him and I'm like scolding him and screaming. Meanwhile, my kid who's under two is in the car. And I'm like, what? What? Like I had a moment of out of body experience. This is not right lane. (laughs) That was the, that was the moment of change that I had in my life that pushed me to find a practice that would save my emotional wellness and people in long-term recovery they either drink again, they start smoking, they become food addicts. Uh, they right, like there's a ton of different avenues to go down to cover up that emotion. I chose to go into meditation that kicked off what I do now, which is teaching people how to find a practice, create a practice, live in the moment, which is truly blissful. Ugh, and you're so good at it. I mean, well, you know, we have the 
connected if you haven't got a vip ticket um go get one because you'll have access to the connected calm life which is you know amazing women in recovery and such an um, awesome community i'm also hanging out there um but yeah community and the meditation part of it lane so Mm. another thing that you and i love to nerd out about is neuroscience and when we met and we started talking it was like jaw dropping like you like this stuff too and so you've been doing this for a while but i think mindfulness and neuroscience in recovery can really enhance somebody's recovery i know it has mine since i've gone and learned more about it i understand now how my brain works and when i start to think things what's happening and gaining that understanding is is i think been really helpful in my journey so Let's talk about, you know, beliefs and mindset in terms of using those and how important they are at transforming our recovery. Well, let's face it, you know, if you're an alcoholic or you're in recovery from alcoholism, alcohol use disorder, at some point there's been trauma in your life and that trauma has deeply affected you and it's shifted your mindset, your belief system, how you see the world. And so when I am working with somebody and with myself, I have to really investigate my beliefs and where they come from. Just like this, this anger, like I go back to the anger and the rage thing, right? Like I was so rageful and I was rageful because I had a child, right? Like I I was angry because I had a child later in life. And that was an, a spiritual explosion in my head, but I had to assess that belief and where it came from. And I can't, it's societal, you know, like that pressure, right. Uh, and I had to start shifting that mindset and being in agreement or accepting where I was at at the time. And as I was doing that work, the anger, <laughs> the rage starting melting away, but without looking and without doing work to change the mindset or your belief system, you can't, you, you can't, you have to be willing to get in there and assess that takes a lot of courage to excavate your past. And sometimes it's even ancestral past. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I'm super passionate about helping people realize they're capable of so much more than they think, right? Because once that light bulb, like, and it's, you know, Mm -hmm. when you're working with new people in recovery too, once they realize like, maybe I can do this thing, maybe I can live a sober life. It's such a gift and it helps me more than obviously it helps them, which is also something I was baffled about. I'm like, you mean I can be selfish Mm -hmm. and actually improve my recovery at the same time? Mm -hmm. And I did that Mm -hmm. when I discovered my purpose as well. Um, but yeah, I, I'm super passionate about that, obviously. And one of the other areas, and I noticed I actually, without even realizing it, started to develop this in early recovery and that's emotional intelligence. And I never understood what it was, but I mean, I think I cried probably more in my first year of recovery than I had my whole entire life. Like when the floodgates open, I'm like, what is happening to my face right now? Like, this does not feel good. I don't know what this is. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I was starting to develop develop emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. Right. Can you talk Mm -hmm. about how emotional intelligence is important in recovery? Can I just go back to, we're kind of clueless. 
because we have just charged through our lives. And even without drinking, we are charging through our lives. We're not really paying attention. And so that emotional intelligence asks us to stop and to be present and to feel. That emotional intelligence will uh, shed light on the room that you enter. And that could be an online room. (laughs) That could be a room that you actually walk into, right? You were like so brilliant recently where you said you weren't doing great, were you? Because the emotional intelligence that you had in that moment, you could feel and see me not be quite aligned with myself. And then having that empathy to like check in with me, like that is so important as we sober, you know, gain sobriety through the years, because when we're not having that empathetic moment or being mindful of someone else's kind of uncomfortability, uh, we are distancing ourselves from ourselves. And that is really painful. Mm-hmm. It's really isolating. So emotional intelligence brings us again. I just keep going back to that mindful moment, staying present with yourself. So you can be in connection with others because I mean, we're sober, like, you know, one day, five days, 15 years, 20 years, whatever the idea of sobriety is to ha- like have a good time. Like we've been through the war, right? Like, that's not a good big, like, like we've been through our own hell. Yeah. Let's put it that way. And we don't need to be there anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I find a lot of people live in their past still, right? They yes. come into recovery and it's always the war stories, war stories. And, yeah. you know, I, for the summit, I like to hear people's back history, but most of what we focus on is that foundation and the future because I used to be that person, but I'm not her anymore, right? I've grown, I've evolved, and I feel for people who get stagnant. And, you know, in terms of the emotional intelligent piece, it's nice to actually- But it's easy to get stagnant. It's really easy, right? It's really, it's again, it goes back to that complacency tomorrow. Like we just get in that groove. Like I wake up, I drink my coffee, I go to work, I run around the block three times. I wake up right like that. I watch Netflix binge, jink, 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 jink. I'm not drinking. Meanwhile, (laughs) the disease of alcoholism is relentless, ruthless in there being negative. And like, who wants to investigate themselves? Who wants to pause every day and reflect? Well, that's, that's a big task. Because most people, I'm just going to call it out. They're lazy. Yeah. Most people are lazy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it's not so much like, oh, I'm lazy. I can't get on my bike. It's, it's society has placed us in this, in this position where we're just in a lot of overwhelm. So it's like, oh, I have to reflect on my life. So I don't stay complacent. <laughs> That's too much lane, (laughs) but I always go back to, well, do you want to be free from alcoholism? Because if you want to be free from alcoholism and that negativity, that corrosive thinking, then you might want to just reflect every day. Hmm. And that is that emotional intelligence, putting a separator between those, those two ways of thinking. Does that make sense? Am I making sense? I, you, you know, that. 
<laughs> You're making total sense. And <laughs> you know what came to mind though is just like it matters who you surround yourself with. And I'm so oh. grateful I had that guidance early on because mm-hmm. I, you know, I actually got sober with a friend and we're still going strong together. She's mm-hmm. two weeks mm-hmm. ahead of me, right? And we had, you know, the same mentor at that time. And she's like, are you guys sure you want to be doing this? Like, look who you're hanging Mm -hmm. out with. Uh And unfortunately, I think there's only one of those people that are still alive today. And we used Mm -hmm. to go to the beach, we used to do everything. And I was newly divorced and single. So I mean, I was like, Uh giddy up, you know, Uh this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm glad though, we had someone to help guide that and just make a suggestion, right? It wasn't like you need to do that. Um, But you know, you and I do that too. The other day, I tend to get excited and humans, I think in general, we get addicted to things that give us pleasure. And for me, I have certain areas that I'm working on and I have learned to verbalize it now with my support in recovery and say, this is what I'm thinking. And you're like, Tamar, (laughs) I'm just... (laughs) I'm just going to bring to light something, right? And it allowed me to reflect, to yeah. come back and say, actually, that was a fear, right? I yeah. found out what the fear was behind that and why I thought that was a good idea. But I think that's also one of the gifts is that we meet these people that we can run things by and pause instead of, because yeah. normally I'm like, well, you know me, I'm off to the races. You give me an idea and I run with it. But that's also, again, that's having some time under your belt, right? That's having a community that supports you, that has led you, has guided you. That's that emotional resilience, that emotional, um, that capacity to actually hear somebody, hear me say, hey, Tamar, what, really? Is it, right? Like this takes time is what I'm saying. Because if you were like two or three years into recovery, you'd be like, no, I don't care what she says. <laughs> I just fa- like, it's just where we're at, yeah. you know? And the longer that we're in recovery, we need to foster that relationship with ourselves to go slow, <laughs> to be, to have the capacity to listen, you know, it, it's, again, I just go back to this. Like it takes time. It takes time to recover. <laughs> It takes time to transform. It just does. Yeah. It just does. It does. And I remember I wasn't always the one who could take suggestions. I remember in early <laughs> recovery, I was told, you know, you probably shouldn't date. I mean, you're just divorced, but I was excited. Like, I'm like, but I'm yeah. not married and it'll be different for me. So I'm going to try this. And the guy actually relapsed after. Oh, no. And it was not on me, right? It was takes two people, but now I understand. And I didn't love myself. I mean, I yep. think I have just over the last three years actually learned how to love myself. And it's still mm-hmm. something I really have to work on, right? Self-love and recovery. It takes time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm 25 years into this game and I'm still learning, right? I still, I have to, I'm still saying, can you help me? I I still have to call a mentor and say, I'm ready to just tear somebody a new one, right? (laughs) Like I still, but now I guess what's happened over the past 25 years is just, I have a greater pause. I have a greater moment of reflection. I, the muscle kicks in a lot quicker but I work really hard at it. And and that's where, as we age in our recovery, it's really important to be mindful of the practices, right? It's really important to 
keep practicing. <laughs> I know that's your tips and strategies is keep yeah, practicing. I know. I just keep, just keep practicing. <laughs> I can't help it smart. <laughs> and I think we need structure, right? I've actually heard yeah. there's science yeah. behind that we work better yeah. when yeah. we have a daily routine. And yeah. I remember that complacency phase in that fifth, sixth year where I'm like, oh. I don't have to do that. Like I'm, I'm just going to wake up right before I have to get ready from work. And it was always mm -hmm. this, you know, wake up, <gasps> jump in the, sh like get ready, you know? And now I actually, I learned and I wake mm -hmm. up still early as an entrepreneur, but mm -hmm. you know, I would wake up an hour and a half before I actually had to have a shower because I was like, I can drink a coffee and it's like yeah. quiet. Yeah and enjoy it. And it's one of my, that with my meditation, my practice is one of my favorite times of the day. Like I love the morning. Yeah. So, so juicy. I know it is juicy. <laughs> and we'll, and we'll talk about the community, which is some mm -hmm. cool things in there to help people who are in recovery and yep. who are like, ah, oh, you know what? I need to develop this, but I want to touch on one more thing in terms yep. of neuroscience, because I think it's important is our subconscious mind, right? Mm -hmm. Selective mm -hmm. attention, mm -hmm. you know, what we choose to focus on, our brain will mm -hmm. filter out, right? I always, I, I give the example of if you buy a new car, it's funny, my my partner's also in recovery. He's, you know, bless his heart, but he, you know, bought a new car a while ago and he's like, babe, everybody bought this car. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so now I yep. actually understand how the brain works, but you yep. know, that's on the top of your mind. So if you think about that in terms of being able to enhance your recovery, because you do hypnotherapy now yep. and meditation, how can you use that kind of practice of selective attention and, 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 you know, subconscious mind to enhance your recovery? So I'm a huge fan of writing things out. I, you know, that really engages that rectangular activation system, having the eye nerve, see the hand moving, creating the sentence, right? That nerve to, uh, that system activating that system really creates transformation. So, you know, say you want to move, say you want to live in the Bahamas, Say you want a partner who is loving and kind and generous, right? Being able to write that stuff down, activating that system will then start moving you towards it. It will create the life that you want to live. When I'm working with the client in hypnosis, we are going deep into that system to create and, and manifest that life or to cut it away completely or to activate it in a new way. There's so much information in the subconscious mind and we just don't, we, we're not even like using it, which is such a drag. <laughs> like we like, and for people in recovery who really have so much power and so much, uh, we're capable of so much using the subconscious mind can shift and change your life once you tap into it, but you have to tap into it again. It just goes back to that complacency and, you know, setting up your setting yourself up to do it. Yeah. It's, it's more than just reminders tomorrow. <laughs> so just do it. You have to do it. It's, it's like being accountable. Right. And I think that's why coaches having a coach, and being accountable to a coach or a mastermind 
is so powerful. And when people are in those masterminds or having a coaches, they're like getting stuff done, right? You see entrepreneurs, they're getting stuff done because they have a coach they've invested financially. It tells that subconscious mind bing, plants that seed. I'm worth it. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's worth it. Let's make things happen. Right. Like that, all these little seeds change your life. But again, people don't take advantage of it. It's so sad. Yeah. And I used to be the same way, even, you know, my first couple of years in, it's like, well, I don't want to take that course. It's too expensive. But I mean, I like Amazon, I, you know, I have to, my, my partner was like, uh, babe, there's a package coming every day. Right. And if we think about those things, like the stuff that I used to spend money on when I started to actually invest in myself, that is when things started to change. Right. Because just like in early recovery, we had somebody say here, I'm going to suggest some things you might want to try them out and it will probably allow you to live a sober life. And it's the same thing. I think in order to evolve, you need that kind of stuff. And it goes back to connection. And if, in case you couldn't, Mm -hmm. you know, get it in this interview, Lane's big on connection. So am (laughs) I, that's why I'm, you know, love what you're doing, but let's talk about the connected calm life, because I know that connection has been instrumental in my recovery. Like you said, I've learned how to have good relationships. I'm very fortunate. I have a couple pillars, like women in my life that kind of walk through all of it with me Mm -hmm. and they're still here today. And now I've added to that. But, you know, what inspired you to create the connected calm life? The desire for connection. Yes. It it really comes to that. And I also know that women are incredibly, and men, but the, the community is for women. And my experience shows me and continues to show me when women are collaborating and connecting their world and the world around them begins to change. I see it over and over again. I've made several different communities and it is that connection that we can't find in our own houses. It's a different connection at at home. It's a different connection with your sister. But when you bring like-minded women together and start chatting and start creating, there's like, oh, I feel okay. I'm okay. Life is good. Mm-hmm. right? Like, oh, I'm going to write that book. I'm going to start that company. I'm going to do whatever it is. Things become easier to do when you're in connection with others. Mm-hmm. I, I've it's done. <laughs> like it just, it's fantastic. And nobody is, um, it's not, a nobody's about to get you right? Like there's not any shady backroom deals happening. (laughs) Well, if you do this, then I'm going to do this for you. Right? Like, no, no, that's not connection. That's not authentic. It's we're all coming to the table equally. That is beautiful. It is. I remember when I first entertained the idea of becoming an entrepreneur, Mm-hmm. Um, because I was in that complacency phase of my recovery. Mm-hmm. I actually, after I got back from an event down in Los Angeles, I was invited to join this mastermind group. And yeah. I remember, I didn't even know what an email opt-in was at that time. Like the, you know, the, um, the <laughs> woman who ran the group was like, do you have an email opt-in? I'm like, um, she's like, What's okay, that? so you probably don't, but just <laughs> 
being, you know, the newbie looking at all these women who were doing amazing things in the wellness community, it inspired yeah. me. It was the same thing. I link back always to early recovery. It's that in scientific cognitive dissonance, right? I was sitting there thinking, okay, I'm not worth it. This is never mm -hmm. going to happen mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. But just by hearing the stories and it's almost like yeah. they're like, come on, Tamar, like you're going to come with us. That's it right there. Right. And now I'm one of the OGs, which, yeah. you know, is it's, it's surreal to me because they're like, Tamar, what are you doing? Like, share something. I'm like, I have an email opt-in now. <laughs> <laughs> right? And you have to start somewhere. But I think you have to start somewhere with people who are willing to walk that journey with you. Yep. I think that's what's hard is finding the like-mindedness. You know, and for a while, Facebook had all those different groups and people were just joining groups, join the group, join my Facebook group. And it just, it, it, it's like, now I'm a part of, you know, 500 groups. And I don't even know what those groups are because somebody sent me an email. I'm in an email opt-in and now I'm in the group. <laughs> I'm like, so it's, it's really nice to have a community of like-minded, very specific, uh, conversations are happening in the connected calm life. You know, it's all about living a mindful way. It's, it's about learning how to meditate when, when you've got, you know, business calls and you're traveling and you've got five kids and three dogs and right. Like when life is getting heavy and around you because of this life of recovery that you have now, how do you take care of yourself? Right. Because we forget that we have to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. So the connected calm life is this place where you just plug into and you're like, Oh, I'm taking care of myself. Oh, it's so easy. <laughs> like that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, there's so many, so many tools. So remember, if you go into the VIP section, you'll have access mm -hmm. to that. We'll also make sure to put a link in the group here. And yeah. So if you want to start a practice, just start somewhere and start doing a little bit every day, you have to join us there. Now I, I asked this, all the speakers, what is your superpower? And I did this because actually one of our speakers who I interviewed on my podcast the first time, he's like, sobriety is my superpower. And I, I never looked at things like that because I yep. always thought my addiction is going to follow me around in a negative way, right? Even mm. though at the end on the outside, it looked yep. like I somewhat had it together because I did have a, a job in corporate, right? Um, yep. But I was falling apart. I was financially, spiritually bankrupt. Um, but when he said that, I was like, interesting. And I realized that my past is actually a gift and that we're incredible people because we're resilient, we're resourceful, and we just have to take even part of that energy that we had back then, put it into something that really lights us up and that can become our superpower. Now your superpower is listening. So <laughs> which you know, it's listening and being able to hold space for someone, you know, it's, it's not easy to hold space for people, right? We have a lot going on in our lives. And so just being, and this has happened in recovery, you know, having hundreds and thousands of conversations with other women about life and not being judgmental, just being present and saying, okay, I can hear you and I'll hold this for you. That takes effort, energy, and work. I used to be extremely judgmental. I, I mean, like, you know, 
Oh, I cheated on my taxes. Oh, why? You shouldn't be doing that. You can't be using that as a write-off. I didn't tip that person. Why? That's, they got you, the valet, you should be tipping them. Like small, silly stuff like that to, um, I think my husband's having an affair. Well, he's a real piece of work, isn't he? Right? Like judgment, 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 judgment. And over the years, I have had to practice allowing people to just be where they're at and hold them there. And because people can feel judgment, people can feel it. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a vibration. It's the tone in the voice. It hits the heart and it changes the relationship and the interactions that you have with other beings. Yeah. So when I listen empathetically and just hold space, like magic can happen that like that person can just be who they need to be in that moment. That is a superpower. I would a hundred percent agree. That's an amazing superpower. And yeah, it's, it's taken me, you know, I, I think I've always been very vulnerable um, with people that I care about. And that has helped me grow too. being able to share like, I'm not okay right now being able to shed tears in front of people. And we need that safe space, right, where there's no judgment. And and I always tell people, I'm like, I'm not perfect. Like, I'm probably going to say things where you're like, oh, man, you know, but at least I know at the end of the day, I'm I, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm going to say it how it is. And if I need to own up to something and apologize, then I'll do it. Right. But uh, yeah, listening is amazing. So Lane, if people want to get to know more about you, be a part of the community, how can they find you? They can head on over to lanekennedy.com or members.theconnectedcalmlife. Amazing. Lane, thank you for helping me kick off this summit. I truly appreciate you and what you do. And um, yeah, this is exciting for me. I'm so grateful. It's good. It's so good. It's great to be of service. Thank you for having me, for putting on this fantastic summit. That wraps up another episode of the Your Sober Now What podcast. I am so grateful that you could join me today in sitting in and listening to the interview I had during the Rise Beyond Recovery Summit with Lane, my co-host here on the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, if you want more of those kind of tips and strategies, make sure you come join us in the community. You can find us at members.connectedcomlife.com and there's different membership levels so you'll have access to different things. So pick what's right for you, but we would love to see you there. Uh, You know, we really want to focus on helping you create a life so good for yourself that you never want to go back to your old way of living. Okay, guys, we'll see you on the next episode.